Welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, a conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. I'm your host, Ian Gillespie, and I'm here to ask the questions and find the answers you need to know. We want to help our listeners know how to prevent and detect illness and how to navigate our healthcare system. Be sure to subscribe to the Doc Talks podcast to stay up to date on new episodes and follow us on Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Hello, I'm Ian Gillespie, and welcome to the Doc Talks podcast, brought to you by St. Joseph's Healthcare London. On today's episode, we're discussing a topic that's difficult for many men to talk about, and that is prostate cancer. Our expert today says there's a lot of misinformation out there about prostate cancer screening that can lead to deadly consequences. We know that one in seven men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer during their lifetime, and one in 29 will die from it. My guest today is Dr. Stephen Poutler, a urologist at St. Joseph's Healthcare London, practicing at St. Joseph's Hospital. He's also an associate professor of surgery and oncology at Western University, the Southwest Regional Surgical Oncology Head, or LEAD, for Cancer Care Ontario, a Canadian pioneer in surgical robotics, and an internationally acclaimed leader in prostate cancer diagnosis and treatment. Dr. Poutler, welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Ian, for having me. Let's just start. I'm always good with the dumb questions, so let's start with the basic, basic question. What is the prostate, and what does it do? So it's a great place to start. So our prostate, as males, we're born with a prostate gland, which is part of our reproductive system. Its major role comes into play after puberty, and it produces some of the ejaculate fluid that supports sperm during reproduction. It also happens to be a donut-like organ around our urinary tract. So we actually pass our urine th- from the bladder through the prostate and, and out the urethra. So it, it plays kind of a dual role in males. Uh, again, I'll just dip into a few of the stats here regarding prostate cancer that the uh, Canadian Cancer Society estimates that this year, in the year 2022, 24,600 men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer, 67 men will be diagnosed in Canada every day, and every day in Canada, 13 men will die from prostate cancer. So those are some fairly sobering statistics. So, But I, I understand also you've, you've talked about there are a lot of misconceptions about prostate cancer and treatment and screening. Maybe let's start with that. What are, I, I know actually I read an interview where you talked about it um, as a coffee shop talk. I have to admit, I have the topic of prostate cancer has never arisen for me in a coffee shop or, frankly, anywhere else, which may be part of the problem. But what are some of the misconceptions that are out there? Sure, sure. So it's um, prostate cancer and the diagnosis of prostate cancer is a relatively controversial field. We have to look back at history a little bit here. So prostate cancer diagnosis really dramatically changed around 1990. And that was with the discovery of a blood test 
that can help us understand or give us indications that there's something going on in a man's prostate. So this blood test called PSA came into mainstream about 92, 93 in Canada. And initially when a blood test like this is found, there's a lot of interest and a lot of research that goes on. And for most of the decade of the 90s, prostate cancers were being discovered through this blood test, subsequent biopsy, which confirms the presence of cancer, and started shifting this disease to being discovered at earlier phases. Several studies were conducted and initiated in the, in the 90s and in the early 2000s to look at whether there is a group of men that should have PSA testing when they're completely asymptomatic. So this is the concept of screening for a cancer. Fast forward to around 2011, there were two large studies of screening male populations for prostate cancer that were published in the New England Journal of Medicine. Both of these studies showed PSA screening for men, and each study had different populations of men, slightly different, but let's, let's pick the target of age 55 to age 70. And the conclusion of these trials, one from Europe, one from the United States, was PSA screening didn't help. This was widely popularized in, in the media and taken up by a variety of healthcare organizations to say, really, we should stop doing PSA testing, which was the wrong message. These studies both had critical flaws that led to erroneous conclusions. And it really put our field back probably 20 years. To this day, many family doctors will, will tell their men that they don't believe in PSA testing. One of the key messages really should be PSA is still a good test. While it's not perfect, if a man, you know, over age 40 has new onset of urinary symptoms or something going on, doing a PSA is quite a rational thing to do. As well, you know, we're, our, our cutoff for screening PSAs is typically age 70, but if a man's over 70 and has some new onset of symptoms, a PSA can be useful as well. Now, where the field gets a bit muddy, and I use that term on purpose, is PSA by itself isn't great. Hmm. We always have to do a rectal exam. And the rectal exam in conjunction with PSA makes the clinical assessment of the patient much better. And that's where men don't like to talk about prostates and PSA right. testing. So that, that's some of the controversy in the field. Well, strangely, I recently had a PSA, but my doctor did not perform a rectal exam. Now I'm wondering why, or is that common? Or? It's, it is actually very common. Many primary care don't do the rectal exam routinely. In, in our urologic specialty, we consider both to be complementary of each other and really should be done. And part of that is because a, a PSA can be normal, yet a man can have a irregularity on examination of the prostate, and that should still be investigated. Right. So even though before a man gets screened or decides to seek screening, what are some of the symptoms that they may see or should be on the lookout for? 
So majority of symptoms are with respect to voiding. So frequent urination, urgent urination, blood in the urine, painful urination, changes in urinary habit. So going from, you know, I get up once a night to have a pee to I'm up five times at night to pee. The inability to urinate. Now, all of those symptoms could be related to prostate cancer, but the majority of time they actually are not. They're usually related to either infection or inflammation in the prostate or enlargement of the prostate, but they really need to be checked out. Other symptoms can include constitutional type problems, so inadvertent weight loss, poor appetite, bony pain. Some of these symptoms are related to advanced prostate cancer. Thankfully, that's the minority of patients who come in to see us. Right. So, if a man discovers these or finds these symptoms, seeks screening, it is positive, what's the next step? What, what usually, I, I'm sure this is a complicated answer to a simple question because I'm sure there's many variables, but what generally then happens to someone who is tested positive on the PSA test? On the PSA. So I, I would quantitate that in the sense that there's no real testing positive on PSA Oh. Unless it's absolutely sky high. If it's sky high, that's prostate cancer. For example, if it's in the thousands. Most PSAs are between 1 and 10, for example. So if there is clinical suspicion, there is a clinic that we host here at St. Joseph's, which is our, our London Middlesex Clinic for Prostate Cancer Diagnosis called our Prostate Diagnostic Assessment Program. So family doctors refer into this program. They're seen by myself or there's four oncology colleagues who evaluate the patient and then would proceed to recommend a biopsy of the prostate if there is high enough clinical suspicion of prostate cancer. And again, sorry, that's the Prostate Diagnostic Assessment Program. Let's see. Correct. How long has that been in existence, Dr. Pilker? Correct. Oh, we've, we've been going now for at least five years with the prostate cancer program. Well, yes. So after screening, treatment, I suppose, is... Actually, is there... Let me, before we get into treatment, is there any, any steps that a normal man can take to ward off or delay or avoid prostate cancer? Is there anything regarding diet or exercise that has a positive effect? So great, great question. Prostate cancer prevention has been a subject of a lot of interest in the last 20, 25 years. There have been numerous studies done to look at preventing prostate cancer, either by dietary supplements. For example, a large study, there were over a thousand men from London that were enrolled in this trial looking at selenium supplementation and seeing if that would reduce the risk of prostate cancer. In the end, that trial was a negative trial. It did not show that dietary supplements could really make a man avoid the potential for prostate cancer. Diet, certainly a diet that's heart healthy, so low in saturated mm -hmm. fats, high in fruit and vegetables, will benefit a man not only from the heart standpoint, but likely from the prostate standpoint. Right. The old Mediterranean diet. Correct. Regular exercise has, has some, there is some evidence that it reduces prostate cancer progression. So one of, one of our colleagues who practices at University of Michigan commonly will say, you know, if, if I talk to my patients and I say, I can give you a prescription today, and that prescription will reduce your risk of getting prostate cancer, and if you do get it, reduce the risk of it being a bad cancer and taking your life, reduce your risk of erectile problems and urinary problems, et cetera, et cetera, would you take it? And universally, 
people say, sure, sure, I'll take it. What mm-hmm. is it? What is it? And he says, a healthy diet and exercise right. daily. <laughs> so, so that, I, I think, we we undervalue that, although we don't have strong scientific evidence for some of some of those claims. It's building. And is is there a, there must be a strong genetic? Is there sort of a predisposition, a genetic cause for prostate cancer? I mean, is there something to look for if my father had it or my mother had something else? I'm more likely to get it. We've understood for many years that prostate cancer can run in families. And over the last 20 years, there's been very significant analysis looking at genetic predisposition, looking at family histories, indeed to the point that we now have a genetic screening panel. So if someone is diagnosed with an advanced prostate cancer or they have first-degree relatives with prostate cancer, breast cancer, or ovarian cancer, we can run genetic screening on them to see if they carry an altered gene that has led to their development of prostate cancer. If you have first-degree family members with these cancers or with prostate cancer, so a father, a brother, your risk doubles. And if you have two first-degree relatives, you're almost at about a 50% chance of developing the cancer yourself. So we do offer genetic testing now to the appropriate individuals who are diagnosed with the disease. And then if they're positive, that expands to their their first-degree relatives, their children, brothers, sisters, etc. And again, the general recommendation is men that should start screening between age 45 and 50. Is that correct? So correct. The Canadian guideline is at age 45 if you have a first-degree family member with prostate cancer. And most of us will, if let's say your mother had breast cancer and a sister has breast cancer, we'd expand it to that man as well. So and with genetic testing now, that is really a, a situation of screening. So if you do carry an altered gene that puts you at higher risk, then yes, yearly PSA testing and, and digital rectal exam is recommended. You talked earlier about this rather misguided study and the effect it had. And I'm wondering too, with recent pandemic, I think I read somewhere that prostate screening is actually decreasing. Is that correct? And if, if so, and that's a dangerous trend, what, what do you think are some of the causes of that? Yeah, so definitely as a result of those New England Journal papers back in 2011, the Canadian body that recommends periodic health exam screening tests to primary care doctors recommended against PSA testing. And again, that's in a screening context, so someone without symptoms. Unfortunately, some some primary care doctors have kind of taken that as carte blanche and don't do PSAs ever, which is wrong. So certainly if a man's symptomatic, it's not really called a screening test, your case finding. Having said that, if you have a first-degree family member or history of, of the other malignancies, as I was talking about, then screening PSA is still recommended in those men. As well with the pandemic, unfortunately, face-to-face healthcare has has been a challenge. So many of my primary care physician colleagues couldn't see patients face-to-face to, to advise them regarding testing or not testing. People were fearful of going into doctor's offices or to the hospital. So deferring their health care has happened as well, which has been a, been a challenge. We're at a relatively safe space right now with COVID. Our numbers are low in our community and more patients are accepting to come in and be evaluated. But there's still some fear out there, absolutely. So I think that's contributed. 
So mixed messaging with some poorly controlled studies, as well as misinterpretation on the behalf of, of my colleagues, and then COVID on top of things. So I think those are, are all contributing. Right. What is my option if my doctor falls into that category that you mentioned and is one of those doctors who won't arrange or provide for a, a PSA test? What's, what's my option? Yeah, so they, they're, unfortunately in our system, not a lot of options. You can pay for it, but you still need a physician's order to get the test. I see. I can't uh, just they, approach the, the, the at St. Joe's, I can't go to the prostate diagnostic assessment program directly. No. 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 Unfortunately, okay. no. They're, the demand is huge. And this, these are for men who've already had PSAs that are abnormal or abnormal rectal exams. So uh, they have to be referred in by a primary care physician or nurse practitioner. Right. So again, if my doctor doesn't do it, I'm kind of between a rock and a hard place, which may not be the best analogy, or it might be a good analogy for prostate. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, having a, having an informed discussion with your doctor is, is wise. Advocating for yourself is wise, you know, and, and they may have legitimate reasons. You know, if, if a man has less than a 10-year life expectancy, be it because of heart disease or another malignancy or something else, then doing a PSA is probably the wrong thing. And I would agree, don't don't get that test because something else will likely get you first. Oh, it's a it's a slow is that is it's a slow developing cancer is that fair to say? So, that? so it's fair to say most are slow developing and slow growing. Not all of them. There is evidence from a autopsy series that was done in Detroit for young men who died either from gunshot wounds or motor vehicle collisions. And these men were in their 20s and 30s, and they did autopsies and looked for evidence of prostate cancer under the microscope, so histologic or pathologic prostate cancer. And uh, roughly one-third of men in their 30s in Detroit had prostate cancer identified. Now, definitely not one-third of them had clinical prostate cancer. So cancer that would be visible because a PSA is elevated or an abnormal rectal exam. And we don't know the, the natural history of those tumors that were identified histologically. So the messaging there is it can develop. It develops in a majority of us as we age, but not all of these are significant cancers. And one of the problems has been overdiagnosis. So diagnosing too many men with prostate cancers that are not significant cancers and aggressively treating them. Now, this has been a phenomenon across the border in the United States. It has happened here in Canada and in Europe, Australia, but certainly to a greater degree, I believe, in the U.S. And we've taken a more rational approach in Canada to treatment. So not every man who's diagnosed with a prostate cancer do we recommend radical treatment, being surgery or radiation treatment options. Many men are, are candidates for what's called active surveillance. So we're actually, with full knowledge that they have prostate cancer, but they have a small amount of a low-grade or non-aggressive cancer, their PSAs aren't sky high, so we monitor them. And we alter their treatment course if the cancer tells us they need treatment. So if we see signs of progression in the amount of cancer, the aggressiveness, the PSA. Now, not all men do well with that strategy. 
some men that is a, a burden on their mental health. They are anxious and stressed. They so want part to know, of our job, they want to take, take action. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Part of our job is to educate them. Part of our job is to, is to help them during this journey. When active surveillance first was proposed, one of the leaders of this was a colleague from Toronto, uh, who really, our American colleagues were actually quite aggressive towards, you know, saying this is, this is heresy, you're going to have patients die. And really, over the last 30 years, he's proven that that is not the case. And to the point now, Americans are adopting active surveillance, they have been for more than 10 years. And really, that is... The discussion of over-diagnosis and over-treatment is something you would never have heard 20 years ago in the States. Now we hear they've kind of adopted our way of looking at the disease. So again, the treatment kind of boils down to, well, you either, as you said, surveil it or monitor it or radiation and surgery then. Radiation, surgery, or if it's advanced disease, you may use a combination in conjunction with hormonal treatments. The technical term is androgen deprivation therapy. Even more advanced cases, that's their primary way of treatment. And chemotherapy has been making strides over the last decade or so as well in earlier use of chemo in certain appropriate scenarios. And I know this may be part of uh, men's general reluctance to kind of confront this disease, but sometimes things like incontinence and erectile issues are a result of, the, is that the radiation treatment? Is that, that correct? So it can be radiation or actually more right. commonly surgery. So the surgeries I, I do, unfortunately, do render some men incontinent permanently. Now, thankfully, that's a minority of the patients as a long-term sequelae of surgery. Could you put a number on that? Like is a minority, is it so in, 20% in, or? Yeah, in, in my personal practice, so I track the outcomes of every patient I've operated on. So I've done more than 865 robotic prostatectomies at St. Joseph's since 2005. And when you look at incontinence, so... We leave a catheter in a man for two weeks after surgery, remove that catheter, every man is universally incontinent. Some gain back their urine control very quick within the first couple of weeks. Some it takes two months, some it's six months, some it's a year. If you look at the outcomes as far as permanent incontinence, so leaking urine to the point that it is impacting their quality of life, at, at a year in my series of men, it's it's 3.5%. So it's quite low. Now there are, you know, at around 17% of men will still wear what we term a safety pad in their underwear, just in case they squirt a little bit of urine here or there. It may be with strenuous lifting. It may be with a sneeze. Uh, a lot of men will report after having a couple beers on the golf course, they are a little more relaxed. They, they dribble a little bit. But for the most part, most men gain back good urinary function following surgery. It's a challenge at first. It, it certainly right. is, but they're prepared for that. We have some expert physiotherapists in the region who help with men kind of relearning the whole urinary control piece of their life. And are there any, what about the erectile difficulties? Is that um, So erectile difficulties... Or? Yeah, definitely happen. Now, um, 
quantitating erectile function before surgery is something that we have standardized questionnaires. We know that 60% of Canadian males by age 60 report erectile dysfunction of some sort. It may be situational, it may be one time it happened, it may be routine. So understanding a man's baseline function is important. During surgery, there are nerves that are very closely approximated to the prostate that uh, run to the penis and provide uh, stimulus for erectile function. Now, sometimes we have to sacrifice those nerves at surgery because they are also a route that cancer tries to escape from the prostate and grow along these nerves. So uh, what we do at surgery matters how a man is functional before surgery matters. And then after surgery, we know even if we spare these nerves, they're, they're stunned. They don't function immediately. I spoke to a patient earlier today who I operated on in May, and this man has continence, he has normal urinary function, and he's already having erections, which, which are sufficient enough for a sexual activity, which is really mm-hmm. the exception. Most men, it's somewhere around six months to two years following surgery that we see a sexual functional recovery if it comes back. But again, we have to quantitate that. If you're already having troubles before surgery, surgery is not going to help that. And in most men, that will be the loss of efficient erections. Now, not all is lost if if you're not having spontaneous erections. We can rehabilitate with oral drugs like sildenafil, uh, vardenafil, known commercially as Viagra, Cialis, Levitra. There are penile injection therapies that can be used, which is a more invasive drug delivery to provide stimulus for erections, increasing blood flow to the penis. And then there's even surgeries to put in artificial penile implants, which one of my colleagues is an expert at doing those. So there are many ways to treat the erectile dysfunction. One of the other problems or controversies I find in this field, south of the border, again, being a competitive market for patients. Institutions and surgeons are not always, let's say, forthright with their exact outcomes. Some institutions advertise sexual functional recovery of 95%. Well, if the lay public hear that, they think, okay, that's great. Well, you, you Canadian surgeons must be bad because in my best patient cohort, even if I do the very best nerve sparing, I'm only seeing about 72% regained sexual function, and that's with aid, with, with oral drug therapy and some men on to injection therapy. We're not doing a worse operation. We're simply reporting the true outcomes. Uh, you have to remember the consumerism in the States is such that if one place says, oh, my erections are 70% and the next guy down the road says 90%, <laughs> who are you going to pick? You're going to go to the right. 90% guy. But I think we have to be very cautious with how some of this is reported. Is that an honest-to-goodness trend or a lot of Canadian men going to the U.S. because of those statistics or those perceptions? I, I would say no. But early in robotic experience, so in the 2000s, we did have men cross and uh, go to Detroit for surgeries. And the reported outcomes were quite eye-opening. So when I had some patients who elected to go there and come back, and they quote, they have a transfusion rate of less than 1%, yet three patients of mine who went had transfusions, 
it, it confused me a bit. So again, healthy skepticism when you're looking at for-profit healthcare, I think is is important. And unfortunately, that's left up to the patient these days. Dr. Peller, what, what's the approach that uh, you take for, for men who develop some of these negative side effects from the treatment? We work with them, Ian, to try to understand exactly how it's impacting their quality of life. And there are some basic first steps that, as their surgeon, that I would take looking towards pelvic floor physiotherapy, for example, for some men for incontinence. Some men have overactive bladder, so there are medications that can be used. If they don't initially respond and it's quite problematic, then I actually have colleagues here who are experts with voiding dysfunction and treatment of incontinence, uh, and I would have them refer to my colleagues for evaluation. There, With respect to erectile issues, if they're refractory to oral medication or injection therapy, then another colleague of mine here is, is a nationally renowned surgeon for erectile dysfunction, and I would have them evaluated for or consideration of a penile implant, for example. So we do have the comprehensive care and and different platforms for care all here at St. Joseph's. Uh, indeed, many men from southwestern Ontario have these complications at other institutions with other colleagues send their patients here to my colleagues for evaluation. So we're lucky to have all the all the expertise in-house. Right. We should probably wrap up pretty soon. I just want to touch on, though, the, which is probably not a... <laughs> simple topic to quickly dispense with, but the the robotic surgery that you're pioneering, can you give us a quick sense of what that's all about? Sure, sure. So it, it, surgical robotics started really in the late 90s, early 2000s. I was at the point in my career where I was a young up-and-coming surgeon and had the opportunity to learn some surgical robotics in my fellowship and then returned to London in 2002. At the time, had a robot called Zeus and then had just got a new one called Da Vinci. There's nothing magical about the robot, but basically what it does is it miniaturizes our hands. So we're using instruments with little wrists the instrument itself is only about eight millimeters in size, and there's multiple arms to this robot that we can go in and do the exact same surgery we could do with our hands through a bigger open incision, right. but minimize the trauma to the patient. So we do see faster recovery. We see improved early continence. I, in my practice, I've seen better erectile functional outcomes with robotic than I ever saw with my open surgeries. So it has been something that over the last uh, 20 years, we've really proven that we can use surgical robotics in the Canadian system to the point now there, I believe there's 32 robots in the country. There is now a competitive company making a surgical robot that just got Health Canada approval. So we do expect there should be likely even more surgeons able to offer this type of surgery over time. Right. Hopefully the price points for the equipment will drop a bit to make it more affordable in our system. What Can you tell me just what percentage of the surgeries are performed robotically? Well, so that's a, a great question. So for, for prostate cancer, in the United States, more than 90% are robotic. So wow. that gives you the, the magnitude south of the border. Now, mm -hmm. the costs are passed on to the patient. 
in in Ontario, we're about 40% are robotic. So still down, although that number each year has been increasing. And I guess, would that number be higher in London because of St. Joe's technology and so forth? So it's not not quite. The, the, I do have other colleagues who are still doing open surgeries in town. And so uh, our numbers wouldn't quite be above 50% robotic. But there's several who, others who are also trained with robotic surgery who either do it at London Health Sciences or who come to St. Joseph's to do that. Is there any research on the horizon that you're optimistic about or excited about that is going to make some big changes in treatment? So there are many, many studies undergoing at this time. Movember, which has been a worldwide fundraiser, has has raised huge amounts of money that's been going into research. I'd highlight one study that we're doing locally in London, which is looking at specialized PET scan imaging for prostate cancer, called PSMA PET scans. These are done currently at St. Joseph's on our PET scanner, and we're able to identify men when they have recurrent prostate cancer and alter what we used to do for treatment, which was more of a shotgun approach, and hone it in on their individual circumstances. This PET imaging will also help us likely develop protocols for which men need more aggressive treatment up front or men who maybe require less intensive treatments up front and may end up playing a role in monitoring prostate cancers eventually. So I'm quite excited about our molecular imaging platform and you know the world is changing with artificial intelligence and and that may also come in to play a role in helping men decide what to do when they're diagnosed or perhaps what not to do and personalize their care. So exciting times. I'm optimistic too. Excellent. Right. Okay. Dr. Butler, is there anything else just that we haven't touched on that you think is important just to mention or maybe um, wrap up with one final thought? Yeah, I think I encourage men who are diagnosed with prostate cancer to educate themselves and their families. We're here to help them work through their journey. And every man's journey is slightly different. To talk at the coffee shop, as I've mentioned in, in other talks, what what somebody's Uncle Bill had is not necessarily what you have. And really ask the questions and we'll help, help men get through their journey. Dr. Powler, thank you so much for taking your time out and sharing your expertise with us today. Thank you. My pleasure, Ian. Thank you. That's it for this episode of the Doc Talks podcast. Thanks for joining us and join us next time when we'll continue our conversation on what's new and relevant in the world of Canadian medicine and hospital healthcare. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at St. Joseph's London or visit sjhc.london.on.ca slash podcast. Until then, stay healthy. Thank you.